You know, I've said it already uh, many times, but I say it again for those of you who weren't in Sunday school this morning. <clears throat> Susan and I are just so thankful for Grace Presbyterian Church. Yeah, you, you started out with us 35 years ago. You were the first church that ever took us on as missionaries, and you have stuck with us on the journey for 35 years. You have been our brothers and sisters. You've prayed for us. You've loved us and cared for us and supported us, and so we just, we are eternally thankful for Grace Presbyterian Church. Thank you. Sorry for my, <laughs> at least you know I mean it. Um, <laughs> Uh, and you have, you have uh, actually privileged me to speak, preach many times at, at uh, Grace Presbyterian. In fact, I found a copy of my first message here in 1990, uh, May 13, 1990, Grace Presbyterian Church. And I'll, I mention that because um, by now you've, you've heard all my stories, I think. You've heard all my Chad stories. Uh, and you might hear a few again today. One in particular I know you're going to hear again, at least some of the old timers, you will hear it again. But I think you'll agree with me, this story of the sultan and his grandson is such a powerful story. And it just fits so well with this topic about joy and missions. I couldn't help but tell this story again. It's a true story. And so the topic is joy and missions. And let's look at the word, the scripture. The passage is Isaiah chapter, 20, chapter 55, Isaiah 55. I'm actually going to be reading from the 1986 version of the NIV because there's one phrase in there that's very uh, special and very precious in that translation. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5. Come, all you who are thirsty... Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Verse 5. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that do not know you will hasten to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And these are your people. We are all your people. And I just pray, Lord, that in some way you will use my humble words and my thoughts. Lord, let it be only truth. Let it be only you. Let it be only pointing to you and let it be somehow useful in your hands for your kingdom. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
As many of you know, some of you don't know, perhaps new people, that I'm a medical doctor and worked in the country of Chad, Africa, worked in the north among our brothers and sisters, Muslim brothers and sisters. And in that Muslim Arabic environment, um, there are still sultans, even in modern day. And a sultan is like a king. A sultan has a lot of power and authority. And sultans rule, and they have a palace, and they have princesses and princes. And in fact, Susan taught English to one of the princesses and called her princess. And so there's a lot of protocol and power around these sultans who are like kings. Well, during one season of my medical work, I became kind of like the sultan's personal physician. And he would snap his fingers and I would go to the palace and I would treat his blood pressure or whatever. But actually during that season, I went to the palace more frequently to treat his grandson. So he had during that season, uh, he had a grandson about five, six, seven years old, and the grandson had some congenital lung problems, so frequently he was infected, frequently needed antibiotics. On this one particular trip, I had been to the palace to see the grandson. He wasn't sick. I, he just needed a follow-up antibiotic injection, so I'd given him his injection. I was walking out of the palace with my doctor's bag, and the sultan's servants uh, signaled to me, and they said, uh, Dr. Louis, that's what they called me. Dr. Louis, uh, the sultan wants to see you. But this time it's not on medical business. This time it's an official visit. And so I was ushered into the throne room of the sultan. He actually has a throne room. It doesn't have a throne, but it's a room that's called his throne room. And it's a, it's a room as big as at least the two middle sections here of this room and about that long. And at the far end of the room sat the sultan sat on the floor, no throne, but sat on the floor, all his robes and his big turban, big guy, very impressive figure. And you come into the room and actually you notice the atmosphere is very kind of quiet and somber and fearful because there's a lot of protocol to seeing the sultan. And in fact, um, you have to take off your shoes. You can never turn your back to the sultan. Uh, and you can only approach the sultan, you can only get as close to the sultan as your status in society allows you. So the more important people, like Terry and Katie, they can sit up front, but the rest of you in the back there. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't, the thing for me was, I didn't know, you know, how close can I come? What's the protocol for me? And in the old days, this is true, in the, of course, the ancient days of the sultans, if you broke protocol, you were beheaded. So I was like a little nervous going into this because uh, I didn't know exactly all the protocol. But what I did was, truthfully, uh, I looked on this side of the room and way in the back, there were some women and probably some farmers and then about middle, you know, some nicer dressed and maybe some important looking people a little bit close. But I didn't know my place in this rank. And so I entered into those back doors and uh, took a few steps and then stopped. And then the sultan gave me a signal, and I took a few more steps and stopped, and then he gave me another signal. And I, you remember the old children's game, red light, green light? You know, it's kind of like <laughs> red light, green light, red light, green light. I kind of made my way eventually until the, the sultan gave me a signal to sit down, and we began to talk. Um, and I don't, I actually, seriously, I've tried to remember, what was it that we talked about that day? I don't remember, but I remember what happened next. And in the midst of all this somber, uh, fearful protocol, all of a sudden, through that back door, burst this grandson. 
And the grandson, I don't know whether he even took off his shoes. I, I hope he did, but he, I, I don't know. But he just ran right along this side of the room. He just ran right across, right by everybody, right by me, and jumped into the arms of his grandfather, the sultan, who welcomed him with a big joy, a big grin of delight. And this grandson, during the rest of our conversation, he just snuggled in his grandfather's arms with a big smile on his face and just sat there for the rest of that time. And you can see how powerful of an image that was to me. And I thought about that, you know, and I thought, wow. You know, in a sense, on this side of the room, there is duty and protocol and fear. It's almost like two images of religion, isn't it? And in a sense, a lot of the religions that I have known, a lot of it is about trying to earn the right to come close to God, trying to get to God, but fear and duty and obligation and... <clears throat> And yet, here we have this beautiful image of what Christ has done for us. This wonderful free access where we can run into the arms of our Heavenly Father because of what Christ has done. And you all know what a wonderful, I mean, Hebrews basically speaks of almost the exact same image. Where in Hebrews 10 it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we, it says, let us draw near with sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You see that we have confidence because of the blood of Jesus, we can run. We can run right into the arms of the Heavenly Father. We can have the joy, like David said in Psalm 16, the fullness of joy there in your presence, David said. There is fullness of joy. We have that possible access. And, of course, in Hebrews chapter 4, it even talks about the throne room. Since we have a great high priest... Jesus, the Son of God, let us approach the throne. Let's approach the throne of grace with confidence. And so you know this, brothers and sisters. The gospel of Jesus means many things, many wonderful things. It means forgiveness. It means redemption. It means restoration. But the gospel of Jesus also means joyful access. It means joy. Joy into the arms of the Heavenly Father, because of Jesus, we have this ability to run and be close to God and to experience it like the grandson with a big smile on our faces. And so this passage in Isaiah 55 is, in a real sense, it is an invitation to joy. Um, it says invitation here in the NIV. It says invitation to the thirsty, but I think you could title it invitation to joy. And the first point I wanted to look at, I think, comes from verses 1 through 3. And I think the first point is God invites us to joy. God invites us to joy. It says, come, come all you who are thirsty, come you who have no money, come buy wine and milk without money. And then he says, listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. That's the phrase that really... It's very attractive, isn't it? This idea of soul delight. I mean, that is delight. That's, that's better than Ben and Jerry's ice cream. That's better than a hole in one. That is soul delight. That is amazing. That is what he's, uh, come to me and your soul will delight. Come to me that your soul may live. And that is an invitation. That is a wonderful invitation. And I think this is what verses 1 through uh, 3 are saying to us. God invites us to joy. Now, of course, there are scriptures that speak of more challenging things where we 
deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. Uh, but this is not this scripture. This scripture is inviting us to joy. This is not a scripture that's against satisfaction. This is encouraging us to be satisfied. Come to me and your soul will delight. It is encouraging us to that satisfaction. Now, this is not prosperity gospel. This is not encouraging us to satisfaction in lesser things. Because right there he says, God is saying, why do you spend money on that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? So in a sense, why are you working so hard to find your delight in these lesser things? When you can have your delight in the greatest thing, you can have, you can taste the fullness of joy in Christ. And of course, when you've tasted it, I think many of you have tasted it like Susan and I have, that joy is real. Uh, the, you know, we had the privilege of seeing some of the young Muslim men in, well, women as well, come to Christ in Chad. And, you know, they had lived so long on this side of the room with the duty and the protocol that when they came to Christ in a full way, when they recognized that, the joy they had was incredible. And they tasted it and they just, they loved it. Um, in fact, you know, today we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, of course, in the progression of church planting, they came to Christ. They came to genuine faith. And then we taught them about the faith a bit. And then they were baptized. And then we taught them about communion. And we began to have communion with them. And it was amazing. These Muslim background believers, they loved communion. They, I mean, they just thought communion was just the greatest thing. And if, if we could have had communion two or three times a week, they wanted to have communion. Uh, and I think it's because they tasted something precious and it wasn't the grape juice it was it was the intimacy with Christ and the reminder of the joy in Christ and that was a deep uh, satisfaction that lasted even when their lesser treasures were taken away and, and for these young Muslim background believers their lesser treasures were taken away they lost their jobs sometimes they lost their families um, lost their property in fact we had one uh, Young man, believer, his name was Muhammad Abdel Nebi. He's now gone to be with the Lord. He's now in the arms of his heavenly father. But at that stage, he knew Christ, and he had been a bold witness for Christ in the whole village, and his family knew he was a, had come to Christ. Well, um, he had a sister who was still a Muslim, and she was a thief, and she got caught in the act of thievery, uh, red-handed, and was taken to court, taken to the judge, and the judge fined her a monetary fine, a huge monetary fine, rather than put her in prison, fined her a monetary fine, but she didn't have enough money to pay her fine. And so she said, well, um, to the judge, she said, why don't you take my brother Muhammad Abdul Nabi's house and his land and sell it? Because he's become a Christian, so in our Muslim land, he really doesn't have a right to own land. So why don't you take his house and land and sell it, and that'll pay my fine? And so the judge thought about it and said, well, yeah, that, maybe that's a good idea. And so they brought Muhammad Abdel Nabi into the courtroom and they began the proceedings about taking away his house and his land. And at one point during the court proceedings, Muhammad stood up and he said, you know, actually, go ahead. You can have my house. You can have my land because I actually have another house. I have a bigger house. I have a mansion that is waiting for me in heaven. So you can take this earthly house because I have something even greater waiting for me in heaven. And that was a man who had tasted the greatest treasure 
and so could give up less, lesser treasures. Uh, he was a living embodiment of Hebrews chapter 10, 34, where you know the author of the Hebrews is talking to the Hebrews, and he says, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How? How could they joyfully lose uh, their property? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession because they had tasted the joy of the greatest treasure, then they could lose uh, lesser treasures. So I think in a very real way, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, God invites us to joy. And this is, of course, this is Old Testament. Ultimately, it is joy in Jesus. And Jesus himself invited us to joy, didn't he? You all have been studying the Gospel of John with Pastor Dave. And in John chapter 15, when Jesus is giving his final instructions, you, you know this, he said in verse 11, he says, I have told you this so that my joy might be in you and so that your joy might be complete. That was the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of God. And you know, the angels, when they announced the gospel, when they announced the, the good news, they said, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That's a part of the gospel. And so point number one from this passage is God invites us to joy. And then the second point comes from verses 4 and 5. Um, the shift changes, in a sense. The early verses are about you, come, come to me, listen to me, says God. And now the shift is towards others, towards the nations. And it says in verse 4, see, I have made him a witness. And in verse 5, surely you will summon nations you know not and nations you do not know. And so the shift is focused on others, on nations. And who are these nations? Well, they're a long way away. These are nations you don't know, and they don't know you. So they're not family and friends. This is, in a sense, these are unreached peoples, I think. These are the unreached. These are the nations that you don't know, and they don't know you. And then something amazing happens to these nations. It says, surely nations that, you do, not know, that, that, that do not know you will hasten to you. In the ESV, it says, will run to you. Oh my goodness. Nations, these unknown nations are going to run to us? How is that possible? How, how are they going to want to come to us? And it says in the last of verse 5, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, has endowed you with splendor. In other words, God has done something in us that is splendorous, that is attractive, that is attractive about us or that we are reflecting the attractiveness of God, there is something there that God has done that makes the nations want to run to us. And what is that? What is attractive about us that the nations are attracted to? Well, it's not our good looks, well, at least not for me anyway, but it's, it's not our money. Uh, this is a, the context of this passage about he who has no money. The context of the passage is soul delight. I think in a very real sense, this, these five verses could be summarized as God saying, come to me and your soul will delight and the nations will run to you. The nations will be attracted to us because of our joy, because of our souls who are attracted in him, attracted to him. You know, um, in Chad, it was an Arabic speaking, where they spoke a dialect, Chadian Arabic. And uh, the men there, they always had something to say about everything. They're very talkative men, and we would spend hours just talking with the men. Um, 
But when they had nothing to say, in other words, something was so amazing, they were at a loss for words, they would do this little, they just, it was like, oh my goodness. They just had no words for it. They would just make this little clicking sound. And in this Arabic context, they also were, they're very hospitable people. And if you came to visit their house, they would interrupt what they did immediately. Whatever they were doing, they would interrupt, stop, the, and they would serve you tea and serve you peanuts, and they would sit with you, interrupt anything, except they would not interrupt their prayers if they were saying their Muslim prayers. Uh, so on occasion, I would come visit, show up at somebody's house when he was doing his prayers. So I would just sit myself off to the side and wait till he finished his prayers, and then uh, we would carry on. So I had lots of visitors to my house. As the only doctor in the town, people would come to our house all hours of the day, and they would come very early. Sometimes they would come before the sun rose. They, they tried to get to me before I went to the hospital. And um, in the early days, I, would, I had a guard. We had a guard in our compound, so he would, he would go to the gate when somebody was knocking at the gate. In the early days, I would interrupt my quiet time. In those early morning days, I would have read the Bible, you know, and have my quiet time. I would stop my quiet time, go out and greet the visitors. And then I began to think, well, you know, they don't stop their prayers for me. Maybe I don't need to stop my prayers when I get a visitor. So I began, I told our guard in the compound where Emily, she knows this compound. There's one room in the corner was my office that I would have my quiet time there with a little solar light. And I told the guard, I said, in the early morning, when you see that light in my office, that means I'm having my prayers. I'm doing my quiet time. So if a visitor comes, you just tell the visitor, uh, just sit for a bit. The doctor's having his prayers. He'll be out. And um, they understood that. Yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, he's having his prayers. But the problem was that a Muslim's prayer is only like five minutes long. And sometimes I would be in there just reading the Bible for 30 minutes, 45 minutes, praying, singing, having a good time with the Lord. And then I would show up like 30 minutes later, and the guy who was waiting would be like, oh, my goodness, do Christians have to pray that long? You have to pray for 35 minutes? And I would say, no, we don't have to. You know, there's no rule. I, I just pray because I love it. I love reading the word, and I love prayer, and I love worshiping. I just do it out of joy. And almost always their response would be, <laughs> they just couldn't fathom. They had lived on this side of the uh, of rules so long, they just couldn't fathom doing something in your faith out of joy. They couldn't understand that motivation. And yet it touched something very deeply in them because we're created like that. God created us with this motivation of joy. And so... I believe the second point from this thing is that God can use our joy to invite the nations. God invites us to joy, and he can use our joy to invite the nations. And then the third point comes from the next chapter, is that God's invitation to the nations is their joy. In the next chapter, chapter 56, he goes on, and now God is speaking about the foreigner. He's speaking about these nations and it's very, it's very sweet, actually. I love verse um, 3. He's saying, don't let the foreigner think they're excluded. So it's like God is saying, it's like if Pastor David said to you all last week, um, Lewis and Susan are coming. They're not from Alabama. They're foreigners. They're from North Carolina. But don't let them feel excluded. You know, make them feel welcome when they come here. So in a sense, this is God saying, don't let the, don't let the foreigner feel excluded. And then in verse um, 6, he says, 
But the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy. He wants the nations to have joy. And of course, you know Psalm 67, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. And of course, when the angels announced the good news of the gospel, they said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all peoples. And so there's this wonderful perspective. God invites us to joy. He uses our joy to invite the nations, and his goal for the nations is joy. And sometimes when I pray for unreached peoples, I just visualize them singing for joy, having known Jesus, running into the arms of their heavenly Father. So do you see the connection between missions and joy? Um, it's a wonderful, powerful connection. And I think missions can be a powerful motivator for joy. I mean, there's many reasons why we do missions. I mean, one simple, and they're appropriate, good reasons. And one reason for doing missions is just simple obedience to the commands of Jesus. Uh, he said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And so just that's a, that's, that should be reason enough. Jesus said, do it, so we do it. Um, another motivation is because of the huge need of the world. You know, there are hundreds of unreached peoples dying, going to hell without knowing about Jesus Christ, living their lives on this side of the room, desperately trying to get to God, and yet they know nothing about the free access through Jesus. So a second reason for doing missions is because of the great need of the world. And in my early days on missions, this is why I brought this first paper. That's, that's what I preached a lot. That's why we do missions. But the more I grow in Christ, the more I realize that really ultimately in our lives of faith and even in missions, God is moving us, wanting us to be motivated by joy and delight more than duty and obligation. And joy is a powerful motivator. You know, there was the author of the, little, of the book called The Little Prince, and he said once, he said, you know, there are two ways you can get a man to build a boat. Uh, one is you can just give him the equipment and say, build a boat. And the other is to give him a vision of the sea so grand and glorious that he wants to do nothing else but build a boat and get out on that sea. A powerful motivator. And it honors Christ when we are motivated by joy, I think. This story, uh, I think you've heard before as well, but um, where we lived in Chad, where Emily visited us in, in, in uh, Audrey, we were surrounded by poverty. And on one of my neighbors, he had leprosy. Leprosy still exists in the world. It's a terrible disease. And this man, Faki, we called him, he, the, the leprosy had eaten completely away his hands and his face partially and his feet. Um, and he lived in destitute poverty because he couldn't do any work. Uh, and yet he was our, my neighbor. And so I would go over to his house and sit on his mat and drink his tea. And we became good friends. Sometimes I'd give him a little food for his family or a little medicine for his son who had polio. Um, and sometimes Faki would come over to my house and sit on my mat and drink my tea and eat our peanuts. And we became good friends over the years. And somewhere near the end of our time, one day into our courtyard comes Faki. And he's hobbling along, and he's got between his wrists, because he really has no fingers, he's got between his wrists the uh, legs of an upside-down live chicken. And he's got this big beaming smile on his face. And I don't know where he got the chicken, and that chicken, bless him, it could have fed his family for a week. 
but somehow he wanted to give it to me. And so he, was, he hobbles into the courtyard, <clears throat> and he comes up to me, and he says, here, Dr. Lee, just take this just because I love you and appreciate you. Oh, my goodness. I was so touched and so honored. But think about it. What was it about it that really honored me? It wasn't so much the chicken. I, I, I could have gotten, we had other chickens, was it? It was the way, it was his heart. I mean, imagine if it had happened this way. Imagine if Faki had come into the courtyard and he said, well, I didn't really want to do this, but this was my duty. And if I didn't do this, I knew you wouldn't give me any more medicines or food. So here, hope you enjoy it. <laughs> completely, same chicken, completely different meaning. And because he did it out of joy and delight, somehow it was very precious and very honoring. And I think this is the way it is with God who loves the delighted hearts rather than dutiful deeds. And, of course, um, God thinks it's clear. God, he desires us to be motivated by joy. You know, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul encourages us not to give reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So I think, you know, God is honored when we do missions out of simple obedience. He's honored when we do missions out of the great need of the world. I think in a precious way, he is honored also when we do missions out of joy. And sometimes I speak to our WEC missionaries and I say, you know, we missionaries, you missionaries, us missionaries, we're good at sacrifice. We're good at duty. We're good at doing the hard thing. How good are we at delight? How is our delight in what we're doing and joy is a, an, it's a biblical motivation. It's an appropriate motivation, even for our lives of faith. You know, how, was Jesus, how did Jesus endure the cross? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It is a biblical motivation, and it is what's going to happen to Christ at the end of the age. You know, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, so just two chapters before this one, that's the... The, 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 in a sense, the song of the suffering servant. You know this when it's about all we like sheep have gone astray and he was pierced for our transgressions and on him was laid the iniquity of us all. This is about Jesus. It's the Old Testament, but it's talking about Jesus. And then it says in verse 11, after the suffering of his soul, so after the, all that Jesus has done for us, it says he will see the light of light. He will see what he has accomplished and be satisfied. You see that? He will have joy. He will be excited because there's some from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language before the throne because of what he has done. So do you see how joy and missions fits together? Our joy leads to their joy, unreached peoples, which ultimately leads to Christ's joy and his honor. Now, as I conclude on a practical level, um, I admit to you, not everything I do is out of joy. Um, I do some things with grumbling, and I'm sorry for that. Um, I do some things out of duty, uh, but that's appropriate. I mean, I think, yeah, duty is a, it's a, it's an appropriate motivation. We should be responsive to the duty that is upon us. But I think God's vision for us is not more and more duty, but more and more delight. And this is, that's the vision of the sea. That's where he's moving us. And that delight is there. Some, you know, sometimes it just kind of gets buried, doesn't it? I mean, you remember the song, um, 
Probably it's not on Caleb's uh, list for singing in church, but I've got that joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Down in my heart. Anyway, uh, you remember that song? Well, somebody once made a, a, a funny thing. They said, you know, if you truly have the joy of the Lord in your heart, maybe you should inform your face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes we do have that joy. It just gets a little buried in all the stuff of life and expectations and things like that it's there we just need to sometimes we just need to be reminded that joy is an appropriate motivation for our lives of faith and joy is an appropriate motivation for uh, missions uh, God invites us to joy through Jesus like the grandson running into the arms of his grandfather this is the wonderful news of the gospel that we have that free access and God invites us to that joy and then that joy can be attractive to unreached peoples. He can use that to invite unreached peoples. And his invitation to unreached peoples is then for them to know that joy, for them to experience that they don't have to be on this side of the room. They can run into the arms of their Heavenly Father as well. And so he invites us to join him in that mission that unreached peoples would move from this side of the room to that side of the room through Jesus. Yes, we do missions out of obedience to the Great Commission. And yes, we do missions out of the great need in the world. But yes, we also do missions because of joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm just so grateful to be one that has experienced your joy personally and that I somehow was invited uh, to sit in your arms, Heavenly Father, because of Christ. And we do pray, Lord, that unreached peoples would come to know and experience and taste in a deep way the joy of Jesus, the joy of your kingdom. Lord, may it be so in our hearts and may it be so for them as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.